Hello, I'm Zara, a self-published author of young adult and new adult fiction, a publishing grad student at NYU and an aspiring literary agent. Hi, I'm Kelly, a genre hopping writer, domestic goddess, which is a fancy way of saying that I am a stay-at-home mom and wife, and I occasionally captain the Hot Mess Express. And this is Writish, the podcast by writers for writers, where we discuss craft and hot topics in the writing community. This season, we're also starting to get into some interviews with other writers and industry professionals, so we're very excited for that and hope you'll enjoy those episodes as much as we did recording them. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the difference between architect or gardener, and we're going to start off with defining it because you're probably familiar with what Kelly and I have dubbed the three Ps, which are plotter, planter, and pantser, but these are two separate categories that kind of overlap but don't necessarily. The quick and dirty version is that both of these titles take the gist of what they are in the non-writing world and then apply it to writing. So an architect is someone who plans the story out with a blueprint. It can be as detailed or as vague as possible, but it's something. And then you have a gardener who is someone who plants certain things. So maybe like they have an idea and then they just follow it and see where it organically goes from there. I feel like I kind of fall a little bit into both camps, but I love that there are two very well-known fantasy worlds that also fall into these categories, but we will get to that later. So where do you fall? I identify as an architect. I used to be a pantser and I said I was never going to go back to it. And then I tried to go back to it with my thriller story because I was like, oh, this has been in my head for so long. It'll be fine. The answer is it wasn't. And I had to re-outline the whole thing. So basically, that's all to say I am firmly a plotter, which means I'm firmly an architect, but that doesn't always hold true for other people. Like we said, that these categories are a little bit more forgiving. And I like to have chapter by chapter descriptions versus Sarah Sutton, who I know is an outliner, but she likes to be a little bit less detailed because she would burn out at the end of writing an outline. So she'd be like, this is what needs to happen, but that's it. Like very short. Whereas sometimes I'm like, this happens and then this happens and then this happens. So it's like everything that's happening, not just what needs to happen within a chapter. So yeah, architect. What about you? I also identify as an architect. Most of the times there are things that If it's not central to the story, then I won't let it grow as much as other information. So maybe it's like a mix because I do see if things organically grow and kind of build them in accordingly. So I'm going to say I identify as an archoner. I like that. Yes, I will be an archoner because I need a middle place because I'm also indecisive. (laughs) I do think, though, that like in real life, an architect, they... And I can say this because I have cousins who are architects. So I'm not just pulling this out of thin air and like, this is what I think based on what I've seen from How I Met Your Mother, where Ted Mosby was an architect. They create plans and then they have to revise them just like authors do. So I do think that there is space for an architect to be like, oh, this didn't turn out well. Let's see if there's another option. And, you know, they have to be creative too. So I don't think... An architect is someone who is so married to their plans that they're not open to maybe inspiration hitting them and then following that inspiration. But when it comes down to like actually constructing the thing, they need to make sure everything fits together. Where I think maybe a gardener is more like, 
I'm just going to see where it goes and then worry about fixing it in revision later, which is also fine. And like revision is for fixing stuff no matter where you fall in the three P's or this architect or gardener thing. So I I just want to emphasize that whatever you consider yourself, that's not to say that things can't change. Because like Kelly kept saying in our outlining episode back in season one, it's not set in stone and it's meant to be a breathing document. When did you first hear the terms architect and gardener in the writing community? It was definitely a Kate Cavanaugh video that I associate these categories with, but I know she got it from somewhere else and I just don't remember. I I first read about it whenever I was reading an interview that George R.R. R. Martin was doing and I forget who was interviewing him, but I remember reading this interview. The moment you said that, it was when she tried George R.R. R. Martin's writing routine. Oh, I'm going to have to go back and watch that one. That was a good one. So let's talk about famous authors and what camps they fall into. Yeah, you brought up two fantasy worlds, and I feel like you should go into those first because I think that might make it easier for people to understand, and then I can follow up with you know, some from other genres. Good idea. Okay, so whenever I think of architect, I think of Tolkien and Middle Earth. Now, I have not read the book's yet. I plan on buying them and reading them. I'm joking. (laughs) I haven't read them either or seen the movies. (laughs) Well, my dad was such a Lord of the Rings fan. And I remember going and watching the first movie in theaters at five years old. And vividly, I was like, okay with the orcs, the elves, like all the monsters on screen I was fine with until we got to Gollum. And we had to go because Gollum scarred me as a child. But I still loved the world, and I think that that's kind of what gave me a taste for fantasy. I think Tolkien is an architect, and I know that this can be debated since Tolkien was known to regularly update his legendarium. I believe I'm saying that right. But he updated that through his life. But again, I think with planning it and like how he would go through and update it, it's a breathing document. He planned separate myths and history and languages for this world, but within the same breath, George R.R. R. Martin also created Dalthraki, which is a language in his world. But I think that he is more of a gardener and he'll let a seed be planted and not rush that growth of that story. Much to his reader's displeasure. Yeah, and it's like, I forget where it was, it was something about how George R.R. R. Martin is not your bitch. And I was like, I love it. <laughs> he wants to tell the story as it organically comes to him. And I think that that's beautiful. And I think that that is a process. And that is a process for some writers. And I think that that's okay. Because not everyone can plan out very methodically every little detail and go through and write it. You were just talking about how Sarah would get burnt out by the time she did an outline. Yeah. I think with Suzanne Collins, who I do think is probably less of an architect than Tolkien was because the Hunger Games really felt like a standalone. And then the second two books felt linked, but maybe not as linked to the first book. When she came out with President Snow's prequel, she's expanding the story. And I think sometimes either an author... After they've published the book, it's still growing in their mind 
like Lee Bardugo has said that with a book, once it's done, it's done. So all of these people who had been asking, like, what if the Darkling had met Kaz Brecker from Six of Crows? Like, she couldn't really do that. I mean, I suppose she could have for her newsletter because Cora Carmack for the second and third books in her Losing It series, she was releasing chapters from like the guy's point of view that she was writing after she had written Losing It. So I do think there's room to expand on something. And that doesn't mean that you weren't an architect in the planning of the first story. Because things stick with an author. So if they come up with a new idea, why wouldn't they want to share it with their fans? And I think fans should be grateful for that. This makes me think about Project Bun. This is a standalone book with series potential, but because I am who I am, I'm like, this is going to be a seven book series. (laughs) And these are going to be three prequels. And I'm like, we're so deep into this world building. But honestly, being that deep into the world building, I thought it would take away from the story, but it's just made writing easier and it made writing the story more fun because now we have a better understanding of the workings and everything like that. So it's just, it's a fun process that you can make as detailed or as not detailed as you want. But for a writer like me working on Project Bun, it's always fun to dive back into it because it's easy to write and since we know the world so well and we know the origin story of this world so well. I can say that about your other projects too, based on what you've told me. Like Project D, you have the mythology of your pantheon based on the Greek pantheon of gods and goddesses. You'll message our group chat with Kahila Harry and Brie Bonomo, or you'll message me individually and you'll be like, oh, I thought of another idea to be in this world. And I think... It's very cool that you have so much world building done in advance, which we talked about in our world building episode back in season one, about how you probably don't consider it encyclopedic, but compared to my world building, it definitely is. So you can delve into that whenever you want versus me. Like I knew in the Belgrave Legacy trilogy, but especially in the Belgrave Legacy book, because my main character is the seventh generation witch. And because she's that powerful, that's why her twin brother got magic. But in my world, guys don't have magic. I knew that I wanted her to have a strong connection to her ancestors. And so I gave her the same strong connection to her mom and her grandma that I have in real life. And then I don't know when it came to me in the writing process of the first book, but I knew God had created a certain number of covens. The Belgrave line was added, which was like kind of a scandal among the other witches. But like that matriarch, that original witch in her family was also kind of a badass. So when I went and wrote the short stories for each of those ancestors, I'm not doing one for all of them. Which would only be three more, but I just have no idea what they would be like. I had to think more about expanding the world versus you're like, I know that this is the myth. So what if I just wrote the myth? Or in some cases, you wrote the myth first 
and then incorporated it into the drafting of your story. Well, hearing you break down the Belgrave legacy makes me even more excited for whenever I'm going to get it on this Tuesday. I know your face, your face. You didn't even know I ordered it. (laughs) No, I didn't. I'll also send you the short stories I just talked about. They were originally published and then I pulled it to make it my newsletter lead magnet. And then I stopped doing that and just made the Belgrave legacy the lead magnet because that's what all the marketing books said to do. So anyway, let's get back on track. (laughs) I do apologize for the tangent, but I am as much of a fangirl of Kelly's work as she is of mine. I just had to share her brilliance with everyone, even though her books aren't out yet. You had another fantasy series that you wanted to talk about. My man, Rick Riordan, my favorite author ever. To keep it very brief here, my freshman year of high school, I was not the best student. I was not in the best mindset. I was not doing the greatest of things. And shout out to Mrs. McConkie. Doubt you're listening to this, but you know, you were great. And this definitely helped me. She lent me uh, the first book in the Percy Jackson series, Percy Jackson, the Lightning Thief. And it just changed everything and got me excited about reading and it was amazing and while everyone else was waiting on their letter to Hogwarts still in high school I was like I want to go to Camp Half-Blood. His writing process is heavily planned. He writes short snippets about each character first and then outlines the rough draft with only the most important points in the story. Then he quote unquote, makes himself write out the entire draft. And I, I really love that because I also have to make myself do things. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, yes, this is great. While I don't write little snippets for each of the main characters, I still try to do as in detailed outline as I can. And then I'm like, oh yeah, this is the story. I told the story. And then I'm like, now you have to actually go back and tell the story. <laughs> well, I would argue that you kind of do because you told me. I remember you telling, and this, you know, it stemmed from the names because you were trying to come up with new names for these Greek gods that still had meaning, which I think is super cool. But you were telling me what you were and weren't doing with their characters. So I feel like Maybe you're not giving yourself enough credit for the pre-work that you did on your characters, which we've talked about in our Know Your Characters episode back in season one. Yeah, give that a listen. And then you can go listen to me have all the imposter syndrome. (laughs) If you have imposter syndrome, I would recommend you listen to our first episode, Welcome to Rightish. Yeah, that one. That that one's a banger. Perpetual classic. (laughs) Yes. I'm going to be talking a little bit more about the gardeners, which I know sounds a little bit weird given I said that I'm such an architect, but... One of us had to do it. Yeah, one of us had to do it. And also when we were researching it, I just found these and I thought they were very interesting. So R.L. Stein, author of Goosebumps and a bunch of other things, is a headlights writer, which is a term that Kate latched onto when she did R.L. Stein's writing routine. And it's kind of... He writes a little and then knows a little bit more about where he's going and then writes more and then knows where he's going a little bit further, et cetera, et cetera. The metaphor that he uses is that you're driving at night and your headlights only show you so much in advance. So it doesn't sound like either an architect or a gardener, but I'd argue it's a gardener. Because when you plant a seed in real life, most of the time, you know what you're going to get. Like you don't really plant 
a pumpkin seed and expect an apple tree, unless you're like really young and don't understand how that works. But by the time that you're planting yourself, generally, you know how that works. But you still don't know how fast it will grow because that depends on the environment and you don't know whether or not the harvest will be good. And if it is good, will you get to harvest it or will the animals on the planet get to it before you do, which has definitely happened to people in my family. And I find hilarious, but it's not as funny to them because they were, you know, they wanted what they were growing. That's not to say that my family is full of physical gardeners and that like if they don't have their crops, they're screwed. They're not in Appalachia. (laughs) You said that, not me. But anyway, so I feel like he's a gardener, even though he calls himself a headlights writer, which is also something I love. And then Stephen King is... I don't really need to talk about who he is. We all know who he is. (laughs) But he's a pantser, and therefore definitely a gardener versus an architect. And... His stories always get very weird at the end. (laughs) So I think it shows more than necessarily people who are gardeners and then really, really edit to make sure everything's super tight and stuff. So I don't know if he's the best example, but Neil Gaiman is a pantser, which I was shocked by given how tight all his stories are. I love Neil. I just love all of his stuff, even the stuff I haven't read yet. You know what I mean? Like, I just know I'm going to love it. Those three are like similar, but different enough. And if you feel like you identify with any part of any of their writing routines, I think you can understand what being a gardener is maybe a little bit more than the quick definition I gave at the start of this episode. Yes. And before we go to our closing thoughts, I would just like to gush about Neil Gaiman because I adore him and Coraline both terrified me and excited me and it was amazing and I loved it. You know the story of how that got published? Because I found out on Tumblr and it's amazing. (laughs) Yes. But tell it anyway. Okay. So he gave his story to his editor and his editor was like, this is too scary for kids. And he was like, well, just here it is. So the editor gave the manuscript. It was partial at the time, I think, to their daughter. I'm saying they because I don't remember the gender of the editor, not that they are necessarily a they, them, but you know what I mean. And the daughter was like, you have to publish this. So then years and years later, there's a play adaptation and I don't know where the editor is, but the editor's daughter is sitting next to Neil and he's like thanking the daughter for getting this published essentially. And he he asks like, oh, like you weren't scared. And the daughter is like, oh no, I was scared. I just needed to know what happened. (laughs) So that's why we have Coraline. Yes. And as as a little girl, I've adored Coraline. And then as an adult, I'm just like, I need the book for my bookshelf. Whenever I was younger, reading and stuff wasn't really a priority in my house. So like a lot of it was in the library or at school libraries. 
but that's once I actually learned how to read at my reading level. That's all besides the point. <laughs> but Coraline was one of those stories that like stuck with me, like Percy Jackson. And then another one too was uh, Graceling. I personally actually like Fire the prequel better than Graceling, but that's besides the point. I love Coraline. The book scares me more than the movie. Mm-hmm. I totally expected the movie to traumatize me. And it was one of the first like scary kids movies that didn't scare me. So I Coraline has a special place in my heart because it's so well done. But also it was like, oh, I'm not scared of everything in the world. So that was also really nice. <laughs> You're such like a, a play buff. Have you watched the the play of it or have they not had it again? I think they only did one production of it and I have never seen it. But if it has a revival, you bet your butt I'm going to see it. <laughs> I also love, I think it was like a Twitter thread or maybe it was a Tumblr thread where Neil Gaiman was at like a, like a book signing event before the Rona and someone walked up and said, instead of saying, I'm your biggest fan was like, you're my biggest biggest fan. And then that's how Neil signed the book was your biggest fan, Neil Gaiman. And I was like, he's so wholesome. (laughs) Ah, he's fabulous. (sighs) Getting off the Neil love train. For the podcast, we're never going to get off of it. What's not to love about Neil? <laughs> but I think we should move into our takeaways for the episode. So I mentioned this at the start of the episode, but just to reiterate, I really like the categories of architect and gardener because I don't think there's as much of a binary with the three Ps, plotter, planter, and pantser. But, you know, that's a spectrum too as we talked about in the outlining episode so it's not totally distinct categories either but architects plan and it doesn't say how much and gardeners let things grow organically but it doesn't disallow them from doing things to guide that growth i have a good analogy because you're talking about gardeners guiding growth so sometimes whenever you're growing different types of vining plants like green beans or grapes you have to guide them to let them grow so essentially depending on the idea the idea could be a green bean plant that needs help And yes, I'm sorry. I was just very excited about that one little thing that I thought of as you were talking. No, I really appreciate it because I'm concrete jungle all the way and you are much more earthy than I am. It's okay. I'll teach you. I'll teach you the ways. (laughs) I mean, I'm pretty sure I have a black thumb, so you can try, but I don't really want to kill all your crops. (laughs) It'll be great. It'll be a great time. So going back to the categories, because... I also like these categories or camps. The only thing that I think it's missing is a third category, which is the archoner. I would just like to insert that into this somehow. And you're all very welcome (laughs) for anyone who can't decide. And you don't have to. I think, again, what we said in the outlining episode, that it boils down to what works for you. But sometimes it's nice to know that there are categories so you can feel like, oh, I'm not alone in how I write. Yeah. You don't need to label yourself necessarily as a writer to feel like a valid writer. If you do feel like you need to label yourself, know that you don't have to. We're giving you permission to just be a writer. Yes. Yes. So with all that in mind... 
This is the Writish Podcast, and we'll be back with another episode next week when we'll be returning to the topic of revision. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the Writish Podcast, on Twitter at write underscore ish, and on Kofi at writish. Bye. Bye.